You're listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. If you have a church Bible, it's on page 670. It's Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are worrisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. It is wonderful to be with you at the very beginning of this brand new series on Ecclesiastes. Do keep your Bibles open because we're going to be um, trekking uh, through this uh, first chapter, this profound chapter. Um, And I am curious to see what you're going to make of it. I am curious in some sense to see where we're going to go with it. So um, if if you're feeling a bit nervous, think about me up this. So um, let me pray. I think we're going to need to, right? Dear Heavenly Father, I do thank you that you have brought us into the new year, gathered us together as a community around your word. There is so much that we acknowledge that uh, is coming up in 2024 that we do not know. We do not know how it will work. We don't know whether it will work for us or be hard for us or be good for us. But you do know. And in your sovereign care for us as a father, you have ordained that it is this book that you would have us engage our hearts and minds with. In your wisdom for what lies ahead in the depth of our lives, it is this passage that you would have us launch into this new year 
And so I pray that for every single person in this room, every single person who is watching, wherever that might be in the world, that you would speak to all of us, applying these truths by your Spirit, so that we might leave here with confidence in the Lord Jesus to step out in the world, in the path, in the actions that you've set in advance for us to do. Amen. Well, let me begin with a question right off the bat, and it's this. Do you struggle with control? Do you you struggle with control? It's an interesting question, isn't it? What if you are the type of person who believes that you have a certain control, a certain magic, where if you think about something long enough and hard enough, you can actually change it? I wonder if you think like that. What if you have a belief that you deserve a level of happiness? a level of joy, a level of peace in this world because deep down you believe that you are the equivalent of some type of God. Now, for some of you, I guess, hearing that, you might be thinking, well, this is, this is very intense for the beginning of January. Well, actually, we are going through Ecclesiastes And Ecclesiastes, I'm anticipating, will make us feel very, very uncomfortable. But it has the potential, if we pay attention, if we don't close our ears to the discomfort, it has the potential to change the way that we view ourselves and the world that we live in. So I've got two points for us this afternoon. The first one is this, Quaheleth's. Assembly instructions, Quaheleth's assembly instructions. Now, we've just finished Christmas. I I wonder how far you've got with kind of getting rid of all the boxes and the the kind of wrapping paper and everything like that. I hope you got some really, really good gifts. But I wonder if you got anything that needed to be assembled. I, I wonder if you got anything that needed to be put together. Now, there's going to be two types of people in this room. I acknowledge that. There's the group of people who have to read the instructions in full and follow them really carefully. And then there's the group of people who are actually, uh, you know, stuff the instructions. We'll just figure out as we go along. Now, put your hands up if you were the person who reads the instructions. Okay, there's a few. Put your hands up if you're like, stuff that. Well, let's just figure out as we go. Okay, good. Ecclesiastes, okay, I'm just, just as a headline. Ecclesiastes is more complicated than a Lego set. We're going to need some instructions to follow if we're going to get some clarity out of it. So wherever you are on this one, let's look at the assembly instructions for this very intriguing book of the Bible. Number one, Ecclesiastes is structured in three parts. Three parts. need you to know that. need you to be aware of that. Uh, the first part is chapter 1, verse 1. Part 1 is really just one verse. It's right there. Look, look at verse 1 with me. The words of Quaheleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, speaking here is the narrator who pops up at the very beginning first verse, part one, and, and the narrator introduces a character called Quaheleth, which in the original Hebrew means preacher or teacher. It's a little bit like um, uh, 
someone introducing a guest lecturer before they come up to the podium. That's part one. Part two. Part two is chapters 1, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 6. Uh, and it's the teachings of Quaheleth. And it makes up the bulk of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, scholars dispute whether Quaheleth, remember that is the kind of description of one who considers themselves a teacher or a preacher, uh, scholars debate whether Quaheleth was actually a, a real king. Because there was a genre of literature at the time where writers would take on the persona of a king in order for them to kind of hypothetically take you through their, their teachings or their ideas. It's a little bit like um, an early version of, of Alan Partridge, for those of you who are of age. Or perhaps it's like a slightly anonymous or obscure uh, gaming handle like King of Jerusalem 24. It's that type of thinking. Part three of Ecclesiastes is at the very end of the book. It's chapter 12, verse 7 to verses 14. And the narrator pops up again. So Koheleth has been at the podium giving the big lecture. And at the very end, the narrator pops up again in order to talk to the shell-shocked reader and help them really process what they've been hearing from Quaheleth. As I mentioned, Ecclesiastes is the book that has confounded many scholars. But, but the key to making sense of this book is we need to look at one particular word and then one particular phrase. And if we can get those, then I think we will have the, um, the ingredients for the, the teachings itself to start to make sense to us here in the 21st century. So the first word that I want to introduce you to is the word chavel. Chavel. Uh, you can see it there in verse 2. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. It's probably how it is in your translations. It's either the word meaningless, or for some of you in your translations, it'll be the word vanity. But in Hebrew... In Hebrew, the original text, it is the word chavel. And chavel is repeated 38 times in 12 chapters. Because the writer wants you to know how important this word is. Now, this word chavel has two principal definitions. And we're going to need both of those definitions as we work through this series. And the most basic meaning of chavel means fading or fleeting or temporary. But there is a little bit more nuance to that. The prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah deliberately choose this word, chavel, that's in our scriptures to explain how the human heart chases after idols. That's how Isaiah and Jeremiah use this word. Now, for those of you who are wondering, well, what do you mean by an idol? An idol is something that promises great advantage, but delivers absolutely nothing. 
Let me put it like this. What if your resolution this year is to find um, happiness through a romantic relationship, uh, and yet you do it, but by 2025, the same anxiety and worry that you've been struggling with for years comes back with a vengeance? Or let me put it like this. What if your goal this year is to get promoted? Uh, And so you pursue it, you work hard, you get promoted, but all it does is it just raises your stress levels through the roof, and what you thought would lead to happiness actually means you just don't sleep. Well, you would say it's Havel. It's like smoke or like bubbles. It looks like something. It looks like something real that you can touch. But the moment that you have it in your hands, the moment you have to grasp it, it's gone, disappears. Like a burst bubble or like trying to grip smoke. Um, John D. Rockefeller, who was uh, the first billionaire of the United States of America, once the richest man on earth, he was once asked by a journalist, uh, I want to get this right because it's a fascinating question, they said, sir, how much money is enough? Richest man in the world, how much money is enough? And he calmly replied, just a little bit more. You think you can grasp it. As soon as it's in your hand, it's gone. Havel. You think it's enough, but it never, never is. Now, we need to be very cautious about our translations. I don't want to kind of beat our translations down because, by and large, the translations of our Bibles that we have are excellent, but we've got to be cautious with this interpretation of meaninglessness. Because that which is temporary is not the same as having no value. Okay. But there is a second meaning to Havel that we need to pay attention to. Um, And it's the idea that Havel is also used to be a description of that which is mysterious or absurd or just an enigma of life. It kind of refers to an event where you think it should work out one way, but actually the exact opposite happens. For example, imagine you've been um, a really wise person. You've saved your money. You want to get on the property ladder. You've scrimped. You've saved. You've put your budget in. You finally have enough to buy that house or your flat. You get the keys. The purchase is completed. But then you realize that the council has given permission for a toxic waste dump to be built right next to you. And so your property like that, is worthless. But you did all the right things. You made all the right choices. And yet, you end up with nothing. Havel. Or, or it's like the person who goes to the gym every day. They really care for, uh, for their body. They, they, they really watch their diet. They, they care for uh, making sure that they're always doing kind of wellness exercises and all of that. Uh, and they go for a run one day and they just drop down dead. Whereas another person who cares nothing for their fitness, for their health, they eat whatever they want, they live to a ripe old age. Havel. It's absurd. It's an enigma. It's a mystery. Life shouldn't work like that. It is chavel. 
It is the parents in Israel or Gaza who were very careful to teach their children to look both ways when crossing the road, never go out after dark, to always be aware of danger, who see their children mown down in a hail of bullets. Havel, it shouldn't work like that. If you are careful, it should mean you thrive. Havel. It's not quite true, is it, to use the word meaningless. But perhaps a better understanding is it is an enigma, it is a mystery, it does not fit how life ought to work. Can you see how this series is going to ask us some very serious questions? Now, the significance of Havel is the key to the book. And you can see it in the way that the, the writer, Koheleth, weaves this word Havel all the way through the first chapter. Look with me at verse 2. We, we have Havel said multiple times, kind of saying Havel, 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 Havel. And then it's followed by verses 3 to 11 that gives examples of Havel and how that, that word is going to be used by the writer. And you can see that in verses 3 to 11 it is a list. It is example after example of how making the right choices in life doesn't necessarily lead to reaping the rewards. That's the second use of the word havel, isn't it? But look at me at verse 4. Look at me at verse 4. Verse 4, Koheleth particularly zones into the very first use of the word of Havel. Look at me at verse 4. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. That is, it's the whole idea that you think something will satisfy your hunger for whatever it is, approval, security, comfort, but when you finally get it, it's just not enough. It is like grasping on bubbles or trying to hold on to smoke. Havel. But there is something else that I need to show you, a phrase. It's another phrase. Again, if you get this phrase, it will suddenly help you make sense of uh, a lot of uh, Ecclesiastes that we're going to be going through over the next few weeks. And it's this phrase, under the sun, under the sun. Now, you can find it in verse 3, and you can find it in verse 9, and it means, I was trying to think of how I would describe it to you, it means hypothetically imagining a world where there is no personal relationship with God. Imagine living in a world where hypothetically there was no personal relationship with God. It's a description of, imagine a world where there is a, a, a creator, a divine being, and he creates everything, and he sets it in motion, and he basically just leaves you to it. You can't have a relationship with them. You can't connect with them. Uh, I want to be clear on this one. Let's, let's be a little bit nuanced. We're not talking about a kind of uh, Nietzsche idea that God is dead. We're not talking about a purely atheist idea that there is no God. That, that's, not, that's not the under-the-sun perspective. But rather, we're talking about deistic philosophy. We're talking about the philosophy of, of people like Rousseau, who would say... Maybe there is a divine being who creates all things, but he wants nothing to do with you, and we can live our lives based on our own choices without any reference to that God whatsoever. That is the perspective of life under the sun. 
And so it's with this hypothetical situation in mind that Quaheleth sets out his plan to speak hard truths to your heart and to mine. So look with me at verses 12 to 18. This is where he basically sets out his plan for the whole of the book. Look with me at verse 16. He says this, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. What Koheleth is doing is he's setting up the frame of the whole of the book. It's a little bit like the book of Ecclesiastes are the frantic scribbles of a cultural explorer, a person who has unlimited wealth and unlimited access to any place they want to go. In effect, you're talking about a person who by human standards, under the sun, has absolute control. All of the control that wealth, education, and status can give you in this world, this person has it. And he's asking the question, I wonder if happiness, true happiness, can be found if you have all of the control in the world, and yet you don't have a relationship with the God who made you. Is it possible that true happiness can really be found? if you fill your life with as much control as you possibly can. It's a great setup for a book, isn't it? I hope you're intrigued by that. I hope you're intrigued. Because I wonder actually deep down how many of us really feel that in our own heart. Let me put it like this. How many of you have ever said to yourself or to friends, if only I had enough financial resources, then I could live life to my full potential? How many of you have said, oh, if it wasn't for the tragedy of my personal circumstances, then, then I could really live life and be happy? If you've ever said that quietly in your own heart or to a friend, this if only that we all have somewhere within us, well, Quaheleth is going on this expedition for you. And so where are we currently in chapter one? Well, I hope we're feeling a little bit more equipped. We've, um, we've looked at three things so far. We've looked at the structure, we've looked at the word chavel, and we've looked at the phrase under the sun. And they will be more useful to us on our expedition over the next few weeks, more so than Indiana Jones's hat. Okay, so I hope you're ready for that. So bank that because it's going to be useful. But isn't there a worry that that means Ecclesiastes is going to be fairly depressing? It's quite a hard way to start a year, isn't it? After all, look with me at verses 17 to 18. Quaheleth even gives us a summary of his own conclusion of his expedition. He says, actually, it's all striving after the wind leading to more sorrow. That's his conclusion given to you at the very beginning. Is it all a little bit depressing? There's something I want you to see. It's good. It's something I want you to see. It's our second and final point. The narrator's caution to control freaks. The narrator's caution to control freaks. Now, the terror at the heart of these verses, the thing that makes them so uncomfortable to the 21st century mind, perhaps more than any other era of time in which these ancient sacred verses have been in their hands, 
the thing that we struggle here in the 21st century more than anyone else, I think, is this. Koheleth is basically going to tell us, week in, week out, you are not in control of your life. And we hate it. We absolutely hate it. You see, Koheleth has the audacity to say to us, we who have such advanced technologies that at the click of a button, I can have products made across the world delivered to my doorstep. Koheleth says, look with me at verse 9. Koheleth says to me, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. In the age of self-driving cars, he has the audacity to say that to me. Koheleth has the nerve to say to us, me and you, who have more choice at our fingertips over where we work and where we live and what we do than any other civilization on the planet at any other point in our planet's history, Koheleth has the audacity to say to us, look at verse 4, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In other words, he's saying, look, you may think you have all of the choices before you, but nothing really will change. Koheleth dares to say to us, we who live in a world where anyone can share their thoughts, their genius, across social media 24-7, Koheleth says to us, who have never had more access to take the brilliant ideas that we have and share them with the planet via the internet, Koheleth says to us, look with me at verse 11, there is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. In other words... We who post are told that we will be forgotten. We who long for legacy will be as of nothing to generations that are to come. It is offensive to us, isn't it, that we are not in control. It is offensive to us that our best efforts cannot actually change things. Do you not find something offensive in the way that Koheleth says that when we tell our children to study hard because it will lead to a better life, Koheleth looks us in the eye and says, lies, it is not true. Are we not offended by that? Our entire culture is built on the belief that the more qualifications, that the more wealth, the more status you have equals the more choices you can make. And the more choices that you can make, therefore, the more control that you will have. And the more control you will have, therefore, the happier you will be. And Koheleth says, what an absolute load of nonsense. The root that Koheleth exposes that is so sensitive to us, I think, is this desire for control. It is pride. He's exposing that in some level we have made the same mistake as Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 where we have considered ourselves equal to God that this world is for us and for our glory. 
How many of us deep down believe actually the world should really revolve around us, our happiness, and our own comfort? At some level, don't we actually feel that we deserve happiness in our terms? Do we not believe in some senses we have the power to make it happen? Now, we wouldn't use the word magic, would we? But we do hold the belief, don't we? That the secret levers of the universe can be pulled or manipulated by intellect or effort or even moral achievement. Let me speak to those of you who furiously worry. Because to think about something, to constantly think about something, is to give us a sense that we somehow control it. Even though actually the reality is it's just Havel. Isn't that why some of us furiously live our lives attempting to live in the right way, make the right decisions, be the most upright person, make better choices? Because if we can do that, don't we think deep down that it somehow tips the odds in our favor so to give us a sense of control over our world? Even though the reality of that is Havel. It is just Havel. Kohelet torpedoes that assumption, and do we not hate it? Do we not find this very uncomfortable as a book? But here's the question. What if there was a way to find happiness that didn't require you to be in control? Ah. The writer Leo Tolstoy went on a very similar journey to Kohelet. He looked around at the world, he looked at all that he could see under the sun, and he concluded that actually the world that you and I live in is a, just an obscure, an absurd, an enigmatic joke. It is a laugh. You think you can change it, but you can't. You think you can do better, but it doesn't work out like that. And his response was, he says, look, if you see what I see, the world as it really is, that control is really just an illusion, there are only four responses that you can make. Number one, you can pretend. You, you can genuinely pretend that that is not true. You can pretend that happy ever afters are really only available to you if you work hard enough, if you think long enough, if you worry enough. You can just pretend. He said that response number two is to medicate. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, overworking, overeating, whatever you want to do. You can't control your life, so control it through stimulants. Makes yourself feel better for a while. Number three, he says you can destroy. You can take this world as a joke and you can just destroy it. You can harm yourself, harm other people. We see it, don't we, on those horrendous scenes of often those young men who go into schools with shotguns and just destroy. That's their response. That's their response. As Tolstoy would say to a world where you just don't feel like you have control and the world is Havel. Fourth response was this. He said, you can wait. He says, actually, you can wait to be rescued Tolstoy said it was the belief that actually there is something that has ultimate control. There is someone who will one day break into our world and rescue us. It's not us, but Tolstoy said 
you could wait. Now, for Tolstoy, let me be clear, he thought that fourth position of waiting was absolute weakness because it requires you to put your hands up and say, I am not God. It causes you to surrender your own sense of control. But I actually, I think, I think Tolstoy was right. I think he was right. But who are we waiting for? Well, look, just flick to chapter 12 at the very end of Ecclesiastes to verse 14, chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 14, remember this is in the third part. And we're going to go back and forth over the course of our series because part three kind of gives us a corrective to Quaheleth's ideas. And so the narrator's caution for those of us who would despair at the idea of not being in control. Those of us who would dare to just go for, well, then I will pretend, or I will self-medicate, or I will destroy. The narrator's response at the very end of the book to those of us who would receive this with a sense of despair, he says this, look, God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. In other words, the narrator is saying... One day, God will break into the world, and he will bring justice, and he will make all things right. Therefore, what's the application? The application for us is do not wait for God to break into this world with the futile work of the musicians on the Titanic as it sank. But wait in this absurd, enigmatic world for someone to arrive who can finally make sense of it. And hear this, because I love this. I love this. Almost the opposite to Quaheleth, Jesus has already broken into our world. You see, whereas Quaheleth entered the world under the sun with all of the trappings and all of the wealth and all of the opportunities and choices of a king, Jesus, the true king from above the sun, broke into our world utterly stripped of all the trappings of royalty, without the trappings of status and of choice and of control. And he didn't do it to find happiness. He did it to bring you happiness. This is the Jesus whom we're waiting to return. Abraham Lincoln, the president of the United States in the 19th century, Um, He had a son called uh, Willie, and he loved his son very, very much. Um, Willie loved to uh, ride a pony, and he would do it in all weathers, whether it was hot or whether it was cold or whether there was snow outside, and he had done it over the course of one winter, and he got very ill. They thought he'd caught a cold, actually, but it turned out it was more than pneumonia, Actually, it turned out to be typhoid, and it took his life, just as a child. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because in some senses, Abraham Lincoln, if you know anything of his story, he goes from rags to riches. He goes from powerlessness to ultimate power. He has done everything right. And just like Quaheleth, just like Havel, all of his right choices, the very control of the president of the United States of America could not save his son. And um, Dr. Gurley at the funeral, the Reverend Dr. Gurley at the funeral, he said this, let us be still 
and know that he is God. Only let us acknowledge his hand and hear his voice and inquire after his will and seek his Holy Spirit as counselor and guide and all in the end will be well and by and by we shall have occasion to say with blended gratitude and rejoicing, it is good for us that we have been afflicted. Lincoln, rather than being offended by that, he, he took the transcript that you have on, on your screens. He, he took the transcript and he gave it to all his friends. And the bit that he underlined was this. And by and by, we shall have occasion to say with blended gratitude and rejoicing, it is good for us that we have been afflicted. He stands in the midst of Havel and he waits knowing that there is one who will break in and make sense of that which is nonsensical. And so I guess as an application to us, isn't it encouragement to know that you have one in Christ who understands what it means for you to wait in this absurd world? Isn't it encouragement to you to know that you have one who gets what it's like when things don't go to plan as they should do. Come with me to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus both experienced the chavel of being the only person who ever lived the perfect life, and instead of being rewarded for it, was actually killed as a criminal. That's chavel. Jesus, the most wise person who's ever lived, was nailed to a cross and considered a fool to be mocked. That is chavel. And what was Jesus' response as he waited for that to happen? He said, thy will be done. That's what it looks like for Jesus to wait. Thy will be done. He modeled to us what it means to trust that our heavenly father loves us, sees the world that we live in from above the sun and has a plan for our lives, even though from our perspective, it looks like absolute absurdity, mystery, disappointment, and heartbreak. Jesus shows what it means to look and wait. And I think that really speaks to us today. Because this is the cure to resentment when your hard work doesn't pay off. This is the cure to your resentment when your best efforts of parenting don't produce perfect children. This is your cure to resentment when your social circle doesn't match how hard you have tried. And I know many of you have tried very hard. So what are you to do as you wait? Well, here's two things for you to remember. Train yourself to wait. Uh, let me conclude with this. Train yourself to wait. In the word of Havel, where there is not a direct link between your good efforts and results, instead of worrying, learn to wait patiently for God to reveal his plan. But what do I mean by that? Because actually, those of us who are chronic worriers, and I consider myself in this, you know where you kind of, a thought gets into your head and you can't switch it off and it keeps on coming and coming and coming and it dominates your thinking and it steals your joy and you'll be up in the middle of the night. We can't, there's not like a button that we can switch off, is there? But actually what I tend to do, if I'm honest with you, is I give myself permission I give myself permission to keep the worry going. 
to keep on thinking, if I just push it through my brain enough times, then the answer will come through. Actually, we're not to give ourselves permission to do that. That is self-harm, and that is not waiting patiently with thy will be done. The second application is train yourself to stop and pray. What do I mean by that? When you find yourself in a situation of chavel, where what you thought was going to give you joy actually has turned out to be nothing, when actually you have worked hard and it has gone the opposite way and you are likely to walk back in despair and think this is absolute disaster, stop. Train yourself to stop. And train yourself to speak to your heavenly Father. And remind yourself is that you have one in the Lord Jesus who knows what it means to go through exactly what we're going through and say, thy will be done. And pray it into your heart that actually God sees all things and he will one day make sense of your life in full. So train yourself to wait. Train yourself to stop and pray. But let me finish as I say this. Remember the warning of the narrator. Those who deep down think they are really gods will not be able to stop. In a world where you will face constant chavel, those who are control freaks can only grow bitter. Remember that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in a book that challenges us to the core. It takes the things that we have put our trust in, the things that we have depended upon, the things that we have thought would bring us happiness, and it has revealed that they will not deliver. And I ask that you would give us wisdom to pause and stop and reflect that we have one in heaven who loves us deeply and will break into our world again as he came the first time to rescue us. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would have us be mindful that we, we need to know that this world is not about us and yet undeservingly you love us so much that Jesus died to ensure that there is a place in the future where happiness will not be dependent on ourselves where full happiness will not be ever taken away by circumstance. And so with that in mind, I pray that by your spirit, as we go into the uncertainties of 2024, you would help us to wait. Amen.